We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waters where we're recording from, the Awabakal and Wanarua peoples. We acknowledge the Awabakal and Wanarua elders, both past and present. Newcastle are the premiers! on the field for the Newcastle Knights. Darren Tracy, his first touch of the footy. Now Andrew John. Strikes a little hole himself. He's close. Right. He reaches out. That's a tie to Andrew John. Bruce Street from the little halfback. And that's a good reward for a great game. It is debut match for the Newcastle Knights in first grade. Andrew John scores the try and that should wrap it up for the night. Coming to you live from Awabakal and Wanarua lands, this is the Bay 53 Podcast, part of the Sport Best Friends Podcasting Network, and we are brought to you by A-plus Contracting and Poly Welding. Well, if you thought last week was the Knights' worst performance for 2022, then you were wrong, as the Knights followed up the Eels' capitulation with a storm embarrassment. With the concession of 50 points, our season is officially over, so where do we really go from now? Well, we have a special guest in to talk about the Knights, so make sure you brought your listening shoes for this very special episode as Bretto and the K-Dog talk all things Newcastle Knights. Bretto, um, I, I, look, I know this is going to sound ridiculously stupid given what you and I had to endure yesterday. I'm really excited about, um, I'm really excited about this episode. You know I have been for a while. Yeah, absolutely. We've been talking about it for a while. It'd be nice if it was slightly better circumstances, but it's actually really apt. You know, we're at our lowest point. It'd be actually interesting. This guest can give us a few insights on where we go from here. Well, like I think when we originally reached out to this um, this gentleman, we sort of said, we'll have you on after the Storm game because, you know, Storm, generally um, after you've played the Storm, you get a general idea, like a good read on where your team's at. And uh, unfortunately, we've gotten a very good read on where <laughs> we're at at the moment. Um, ben Darwin, please, thank you so much for your time uh, on, our ep- on this episode this week. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for uh, having a chat with us about all things at Newcastle. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, so I have four kids under 10, so they could come in and do anything at any point. <laughs> Brilliant. I apologise now. Perfect. Yeah. Sits quite beautifully. No. Yeah, yeah, no apologies necessary. Every now and then I like to let uh, my little cavoodle in the background. Uh, I think it just adds an element of authenticity. Ben, like, oh mate, I'm just I'm going to get straight into it. You were a rugby union playing uh, Wallaby. You've represented your country in a whole other code. You, uh, just let's get straight into it. Where is the link between Ben Darwin and the Newcastle Knights? Um, so in 1994, I finished high school living in Sydney. And um, my parents had recently sort of broken up and I wasn't sort of sure what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. And there was a course at Newcastle University called the New Step Program. And it was basically helping kids sort of to, to if they hadn't got very good marks, which I did not, to get into sort of university they could redo a course and then get into uni. So I went, I, I moved to Newcastle and stayed out of the uni and did this new step program. And there was a team in the Sydney comp called the uh, Newcastle Wildfires. I just joined the Sydney comp. And so I played for the Wildfires for two years. Now, um, the second year of that time at Newcastle University, I was actually on a scholarship with the Hunter Mariners. <laughs> but, oh wow! But the Mariners, the Mariners, because the Mariners, Mariners been kicked out by Wests. I don't know if you remember that. 
huge protest, yeah. probably the biggest yeah, protest yeah. in Newcastle history, right? To, to, to protest <laughs> against another league team, you know, training in their facility. Because they got kicked out of Newcastle West, they went to the uni, and the uni said, well, rugby union's big here, you know, you, we'd like you to offer some scholarships as part of the deal. So they gave two rugby scholarships and one, um, one rugby league scholarship. And that went straight straight to the bar on the hill um, for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, then, and then I ended up making Aussie 20s, Australian 20s, New South Wales on 20s. So I sort of moved back down to Sydney to sort of further rugby career. Um, and then um, sort of got back up to Newcastle whenever I could, had a whole bunch of, of mates up there. I don't know if you remember the band Little Hornet. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Newcastle bloody gods. Newcastle gods. Yeah, so my, um, my best mate lived with the boys of Little Hornet up on sort of oh, the wow. road. Oh, wow. Um, I remember staying there one top, one weekend and there was not one clean towel in the whole house. <laughs> like, of course like there just, wasn't. Of course there wasn't. clean yourself, for God's sake. So, um, <laughs> so, so I ended up having my Bucks party with Little Hornet on stage at Fanny's in, I think, 2003. Oh, um, wow. That is so cool. And then I bought a house up at um, Merriweather Heights, or Cahyber North, as I used to call it, <laughs> and, um, and uh, had that house for a couple of years, and then um, to, moved back in 2007 for a couple of years, went to, had this really strange scenario where I was, like, working in Sydney, living in Newcastle, and attending um, Newcastle West TAFE, for a couple of days a week. So I sort of had this dual, sort of really strange dual life and um, and then uh, ended up ended up moving actually from Newcastle to Japan in 2008, but met a lot of the guys through the nights through that period of time. So I mates with Steve Crow, did uh, did the Kokoda with Crowey, so I met the Johns boys and then met Joey because actually he and I kind of had a neck injury at the same time. I met him in the airport once and we were sort of chatting about, you know, injuries and, and uh, you know, Everyone in elite sports sort of knows each other, although I, elite is a very difficult word for me to be involved with. But you know, <laughs> no, not at all. You're a wallaby, mate. That's well, yeah. what I get. Yeah, that's <laughs> something, I suppose. But anyway, um, so yeah, so I got to know a lot of the guys then, and then and basically have been in and out of Newcastle since at every opportunity I get. We've got a lot of mates up there. Jimmy Calladon, I don't know if you remember Jimmy Calladon. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy's there. still a star. Yeah, I oh, oh, please. Ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, just know a lot of guys, guys are up there and then. Um, Joey also came down, worked with the Melbourne Rebels when I was down there. You know, he's 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 the everywhere man at every club and every code. You sort of set up there's Joey yeah. uh, collecting a check. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And um, yeah, got to, yeah, sort of got to know a bunch of guys and sort of keep in touch with them wherever I can. My, my wife's in Melbourne, and she's in charge, so I'm down here. But if there's anywhere else in the world I can live, it's uh, it's up there. So. When it comes to, so the Newcastle Knights itself, when did you really sort of start to take an interest in terms of like how the team was sort of traveling? Like, was it, were you on, a, on in 1997 or was it when you came back after you played? So it's, it's actually quite hard to tell because like, because we, with our company, so our company's called Game Analytics, we do a lot of research on clubs and we do a lot of work on the history of clubs. And I've done some work for the Knights on their history and on their on their scenarios. That was more when when Matt Gidley was the CEO, so towards the end of the sort of Tinkler period. Wow. Um, and so, you know, I have a pretty good understanding of the history, but a lot of that's done retrospectively. So of course I had. I mean, I I do remember probably my first memory of the Knights, other than watching them from Sydney, was sitting in my godparents' restaurant, which was up sort of near. Um, 
sort of Newcastle East area and watching the game where Joey changed his hair colour against Manly, I think in 96. Oh, I was like, yeah, oh, no, going yeah. Sparkle. Yeah. Um, uh, but, I mean, you can't live in Newcastle without knowing the Knights. That's the, that's the problem, yeah. right? You, you have to be. So, um, but, you know, I've got a pretty pretty reasonable sense of the history and and what's really interesting is how far the kind of tentacles of the Knights go. You know, like you look at you look at the ninety nine storm grand final, it had so much Knights history in it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so much has been you know, probably part of the shame is is now so many good players have come out of Newcastle to other clubs and done so well. Um, you know, that 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 I remember even like guys like Will Smith, I think was in Newcastle for a while. Yeah, yeah, you know, he's a Knights Junior to right through yeah. the reserve grade, yeah. And and so one of the things I'm really interested in with the history of all clubs in professional sports, so we work in all sorts of different codes and different different organisations, is around the history of the club and the dynamics of that history, the dynamics of the governance, and how the decisions at a governance level affect what's going further down. And and if you think about, like Crow is telling me, even in '97 they were winning, he said they were in financial, they had your financial collapse. Well, the grand final saved them. They they, yeah. they were solvent because of t-shirt sales. Yes. So, but but um, you know, and you, there's other to- other times and other clubs that are in a great financial position but can't win. You know, anything. You look at the Bulldogs' financial position is remarkably strong. Mm. Um, but it's 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 really. A, I think I'm trying to learn through my business about actually what really affects performance. I mean, if you think about you think about the Knights. In the, in the 92 to sort of 04, probably had some of the worst facilities in the league and yet one of the most dominant teams in the league, you know. Yeah. And yet now there's such an obsession with these high-performance centres. You have every club, you know, it's almost a government mandate for them to get them. But does it actually make a difference? Does it actually help teams win? Um, and so that's really what I'm interested in and interested in how board manoeuvres, coaching changes, philosophical, you know, Changes and structural changes. You look at the changes gone off at Penrith the last 10, 20 years. You know, led to a remarkable level of success. You look at the Broncos and the changes they've made. You know, some might say in a negative way uh, about her feeder clubs, for example. You know, as, as has impacted them. So uh, I, I tend to be a little bit, a little bit more looking at the wider picture and then how, like, when a tackle is missed on an edge. That has a set of that 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 history's got a tail to it, you know. There's, there's things that people have done in the ten years prior to that that have led to that point, and then when you win grand finals, even more so. I mean, you think about, you know, the 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 '97 grand final was born the day the Johns brothers were born. You know, was it, it came yeah. out of their understanding yeah. between one another, which was in the backyard at Cessna. Yeah. You know, and so so all of these things have a history to them, and then and then how that history is constructed will actually drive that. Performance or failure. I, I don't know if this is in any way associated with what you're sort of talking about, but the first, one of the things that did go to mind is I um, read, I think, The Life by Roland Lazenby, uh, a biography about Michael Jordan. And his book tracks Jordan's ancestry, like back to the post Civil War era, and how his family sort of, you know, how they uh, went through. Um, you know, generational change to, to the lead up to where Michael Jordan found himself in Wilmington, North Carolina, to eventually, you know, turn him into the basketballer that he was. So um, I, I firmly do believe that, yeah, you're, you're always a big um, product in terms of, you know, 
the the people before you that uh, get you to where you ultimately um, end up being. Well, I think I think, and I don't necessarily go back that far, so to speak. But you know, when we look at a team, the way we look at a team is is a team is fundamentally a system of skill and understanding. So it's understanding between the participants, understanding of the system of what they're trying to do, and understanding their role. So if a player is playing left edge and shifts to right edge, the, the, there's a bit of cha- there's a challenge for them to try to remember how to play on the right edge, but also un- unlearn how to play on the left edge. If that makes sense. Is that yeah, why? Absolutely. That, that's and that's actually a weakness of a friend of mine who's quite into coaching and pointed out to me. We were sort of discussing, you know, the Knights do injury have to change their back row and, and whatnot side to side. And I sort of thought, well, you know, you're playing in the back row. And he just said to me, he said, you would not believe how much your natural body goes back to what you know. So if you're used to leading with your left hand, you'll leave your left hand, and it's the wrong thing on the other side of the field. And we've seen yeah. we've seen that with the Knights in, the, in recent weeks, haven't we? Well, you could, you know, if 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 you could, if you look at the Knights, it's 05. It's been the story of them, constant change. The clubs, the club has turned over more players, have more change on a weekly basis than any other club in the comp since that day, basically since yeah, since right. 05, and then 07, and then leading further down, you know, further down the track. And so, if if one of the things that happens is if you don't change your team, it grows in understanding. Right. Yeah. So if you have a team that plays one week, you know. Um, the, the level of understanding grows the next week and then the next week and the next week. The problem is understanding takes a long time to build between people, right? So yeah. let's, let's, we, we use markers, we use statistical markers. I mean, we're now at 2000 markers per game in, in NRL, but Jeez. one, one thing that's, that is, is let's, I'll use a number, for example, on the weekend, uh, I'll just bring it up. I apologize. No, um, you're right. So there's a minimal there's a minimal amount of understanding that is required to win a grand final in the NRL, right? And the challenge is that number is actually going up. So teams are actually becoming more stable. And it's, oh, it's really, more it's really stable. Bad. Even even in this area where we hear constantly in the media, you know, players leave at a whim. You're actually thinking teams are more stable now. hundred percent. Yeah, right. You think about you think about what the Super League War did to the comp. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Teams coming, going, players coming, going all over the place. So the point at which the storm won the comp was the point the least the point at which the comp was the least stable. Yeah, right. On. So you had so many you know expansion teams that have been built, and so and so you know even though, so at that point when when the storm won the comp they were the most stable team in the comp which was extraordinary. Um, my favourite stat at the moment I don't know if you want to hear this, is that is that. Um, uh, this re- the Melbourne the, the Melbourne Storm in week ten of their existence was more stable than any team that Nathan Brown's ever coached in the NRL. <laughs> <laughs> See, and that suits our agenda. We've got a big brand agenda on this podcast, oh, and you just helped us out immensely. Thank you. Oh, we, thank we're going to cut and paste that and post it everywhere forever. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. It's this been a pleasure. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, There's nothing Mate. you can say that's going to be better than that statistic. Right. So, so. Um, so the, the team that fundamentally has the highest level of understanding generally will win the comp, right? But the, the, the fun part about the NRL is you don't have to... I mean, you take the Storm. The Storm, will, the Storm and the Panthers have the highest level of understanding. You can see that yeah. on the field, you know. But and, and this is not about liking each other. This is not about culture. I just don't really like those words. I don't really use them. I, I'm more thinking about, you know, how many times this guy played on the left edge next to this guy? And how many times he played as part of the system? How many times he played under Bellamy's system? 
And do you go back in all the way through as they come through the grades? Obviously, those Panthers boys have been playing together since they were 15. Do you look back for Some of them the 12. first grade? Some of yeah. them played together Yeah, you're right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's hard to find. Like, yeah. the Penrith have created huge challenges for us. You know, just how well we're constructed. Yeah. But the, the, what they have is they have the highest level of understanding with the second youngest team in the comp. Yeah, absolutely. That's what makes them so dangerous, right? Normally, yeah. normally the team with the most experience and the most understanding is the is the leader. In them, you've got something entirely, which is something they've built over. You know, twenty thirteen is kind of when they started that process. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. They had that season out of the blue, didn't they? Where they, you know, had a run. Yeah, and and runs runs are interesting. That most of the time, they happen through a set of circumstances. I think probably the best we've ever seen was Cronulla sixteen. Yeah, and part of that was, you know, they I think they lost four of their first five. And in that season, they went from we use a number a word called cohesion, right? But they went from thirteenth for cohesion to second in the year. Right? They were never going to catch the storm, but they 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 were so stable during the year that the level of understanding accelerated past everyone else. So they weren't the best team at the start of the comp, like the storm. I live the storm now twenty years in a row. They won round one. Yeah. But they were, but they were, they were close enough. And then, what we find is, if you've got a measurable level of understanding, if you are a the the away team or the interstate team has to be about ten percent better than the opposition. So we found if you're if you're if you're Brisbane Cowboys whatever, you want to win the comp, you've got to beat the best Sydney team in Sydney. But in order to do that, you've got to be twenty percent better than them. Yeah. Okay. So so, so, so in, in that way, our numbers. In that sort of term, you, you sort of the Cowboys playing Brisbane in that grand final actually helped them in terms of they weren't they didn't have to have that leap they would against a Sydney yeah. team. Yeah, or, or, or for example, you, if you come seventh or eighth and you're a Sydney team, and you're playing this a Sydney team that's in first or second, you don't have to have that advantage over them. Yeah, yeah. So there's a little bit of you know I think you know, we saw that in the AFL with Western Bulldogs in 20, 2016. In, in 2016, you know they got to play I think Hawthorne in in Melbourne, and so all of a sudden it's an even scenario. You know, they got to play a grand final against Sydney in Melbourne, so they didn't have to be better than Sydney to win it, right? So, um, God, where was I? I apologise. Um, so so with with the Knights, what's, what's kind of happened over a period of time is, you know, they started off with a, with a low level of understanding. They grew and grew and grew. You know, by 92, they were a competitive side that, you know, and again, at this point, you didn't have to be that strong in understanding to be successful. Having said that, if you look at the Parramatta team in the 80s, they were just ridiculous. So I think we've now measured every game since 85, but next year we'll be doing 84. But it all kind of feeds our, our, our knowledge base. And then, and then um, of course, you've got, you've got 97. And, and you know, my, my thinking actually was the standard of the ARL was actually higher than the standard of the NRL, the Super League in that, in that 97 season. And one of the reasons was the Super League had so many expansion teams in it. Yeah. Like yeah. it had, had those, a lot of those recently expanded teams in the comp. So realistically, you only had Penrith, Cronulla, Brisbane, Bulldogs that were, were good sides. Whereas Hunter... Raiders? And Raiders, sorry. Raiders, that's right. So you had five five teams. I didn't get my number wrong. Whereas, say, you know, uh, Cowboys, Adelaide... Warriors... Warriors, they were all recently built teams, so they weren't going to put up this sort of, you know, massive challenge. Yeah. Um, 
and then and then what's happened sort of since 2000 is the comp has started to go to become more and more and more stable and and for me like the quality of the competition's gone up you know in australian rugby the stability of the leagues has gone down and the quality of the competition's gone down over time ben what got you like what got you into all of this you you studied in newcastle you played for the wallabies um you're you're your post-playing career probably came upon you a little bit earlier than you anticipated. What what got you into this sort of analytical side of um, of professional sport? I was confused when I saw incompetent coaches coaching competent teams. <laughs> Nathan Brown again. <laughs> so, <coughs> excuse me. So we look at coaches in a different light. We look at co- there's there's coaches and there's list management, right? If we if we take a guy like Nathan Brown, he actually he actually does not underperform as a coach. In terms of the level of understanding the teams he has, he doesn't underperform. The challenge has been is always to get him to keep the team stable enough to perform well. And yet he's known as the great team builder. You know that's his reputation in rugby league as, as a team building coach. So that's interesting. Most well, the thing is, is if you're building a team, are you building understanding or are you building are you building a list of players? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. So so sometimes. Um, you know, like if you know, I want to. I want to. You know, if you look at if you look at the way the St Helens team was built that he coached, that was absolutely magnificent. They were the highest coaching team in the comp, and therefore they won, right? And there's a long history of coaches coaching really well put together teams and looking amazing, and then going to poorly put together teams and looking absolutely terrible. You look at Seabold winning coach of the year at Souths, and then two years later, you know, it, by our numbers, Seabold didn't underperform with the Broncos. The Broncos numbers were just absolutely diabolical. And we would say 90% of teams aren't underperforming. They are exactly where they should be. And only about 10% will underperform. In fact, this year, no one's underperforming. Maybe the Raiders a bit. So that's, that's, I know that's sort of hard to get your head around. But most teams basically are where they should be most of the time. And we don't get overperformance in teams. We've never seen any clubs in the NRL overperform. In other words, you, so, you, there's no low cohesion teams that have won the comp. Ben, can I ask then, is the... The miracle in sport, is it dead? Like, is sport now so... It was never alive. It, yeah. it's a, it's, it was... It was let me put it this way. So, so let's, take, let's take probably one of the greatest miracles in sport people might regard. I don't know if you remember Iceland beating England. Yep. The team yes, had seven, yep. seven times its value. Okay. So we went and looked at Iceland, and we went and looked at, at England. And England have... So their team's worth about uh, four or five hundred million euros. Okay, so, so England England had fundamentally a collection of talent at 350 million euro and, and Iceland's at 53 million, right? So it's nowhere near as talented and they only had two players and they've been playing EPL at the time or what you call the top five leagues. So England, Spain, Germany, France, Italy. So so theoretically, there's no way Italy, there's no way that Iceland should theoretically beat England because of the resources at play. One of the challenges that England has is they run programs from the 13s, 14s, 15s, 16s, all the way through the 23s. So unless the players are the same age, they won't play together. But what we found with Iceland was, is for example, I think Sigurdsson, who's one of the guys who scored the goals, had been playing for their under 16 since he was 12 because they didn't have enough money to run programs for all their age groups. But so the best, kids, the best kids were playing together no matter the their age. Were playing together. Well, they weren't even the best kids, right? The problem is they were losing games by like seven goals to Iceland, to, to Sweden, right? Yeah. By the time they came to play against England, they'd been together for about 11 years. And they just defended their way through the tournament 
and somehow by some miracle. But the thing is that that miracle, once you start to actually use data, you can actually say that's actually reasonably predictable. So it's what gives the underdogs a shot. If you look at the North Sydney Bears in the late 90s, they were built really well that way, and that's, that's why they had a shot. But when they played up against the Broncos, who had cohesion and money, they couldn't do it. So, so for me, that's actually more magical in a way that underdogs can be successful, but they're just using another asset. I'm no expert. I just love the game. But more than that, I love the community. If you're a fan of Rugby League or the NRL, you'll love Big T's Tees. Unique, affordable, and made for fans. Find a link to the online store in the show notes below. You'd look good in one of Big T's Tees. So the, the natural question now is, so the 97 grand final, you've got the Manly side with all the money and all the cohesion. They made three straight grand finals, three straight minor premiers. The Knights have been up and down since the early 90s. What sort of, you know, what gave the Knights that chance? So the Knights' numbers were actually better than Manly. Throughout the season? No. On, Only yeah, in the final. Only in the finals, okay, yep. So I can, I mean, I can go through every game here. I've got, I've got every, like I said, I've got every game since 86. But you don't have to be better on every day. You just have to be better, better on enough days to make the finals and then you go from there. Yeah, okay. But what we, what we find is it, it'll take a certain amount of, of construction, of quality of the side to make the finals. And then it takes an entirely different set to get through the finals. And then almost you have to step up again to win the grand final. So you'll have teams like the 2013 Knights who are in the finals, but not really going to win the finals. Yeah, right. Eh? That's... Does that make sense? So they were, yeah. they, were, they were good enough to get there, but they were never going to be really good enough to beat, you know, the top teams in the comp. And I think the Roosters put 26 on them, something yeah. like that. So let me just find, I'm going to find the 97... 97 years. And also understanding, too, that at this point of the game, there wasn't really a lot of well-built clubs around. Can I ask you, Ben, do you like the finals way that Australian sport is played in terms of, as opposed to your first-past-the-post style? Well, it, of... it probably means it, it means that the best team doesn't always win the comp. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I'd say, you know, they're the best on the day, but West Tigers, 05, you know, went on a run. What it doesn't probably reward as much is good governance, but it means that the really good teams are always there or thereabouts. They just don't always win it. Yeah. A question, of, of, a question I've got, the, the years when halfway through the season the best team were ruled out, so your Melbourne when they happened, when the Dogs, when they had their salary cap, when they were a dominant side, did that actually affect the chances for each team in the finals once they were removed? You know, it sort of teams... Yeah, it, it, takes, it takes out a rival, you know? Yeah. So, it's like, so it's like but, there's three of you trying to get the girl and you get one hit by a car. Yeah. So, right. so, so, the, the, so in that 02 season where the dogs were dominant, but what happened happened, the Roosters came from quite well back. Um, was that just a, a, a good run from that side, do you think? What or do you think that, the, the, the uh, 02 was it? Oh, was it yeah, 02? Roosters in yeah, 02. Yeah, 02, yeah. Um, when Joey the, broke his back. Yeah, when Joey broke his back for the Knights and that sort of took us out too. Is that. Um, was that just the Roosters getting... So, I mean, inju- injuries have the same effect of a, of a coach changing a team. Yeah, okay. You know, so, so injuries will do the same thing. But certainly the Warriors' numbers were not great. Um, so, so one of the things that's quite interesting with the Warriors is 
if there's a minimum required, like I talked about, there's a minimum quality of sides needed to win the comp, right? And teams are changing all the time. They're moving up and down on the scale. Yeah. The, the Warriors and the Titans are the only two teams in the comp that have never been above that line. Oh, interesting. Never, so the yeah. Warriors have never, the year they made the grand final, if the, let's say the number's 2.5, used to be 2.5, now it's 3. I think the Warriors got to 2.3 the year they made the final. Yeah, right. Mm. Um, but, but Roosters, um, I'm just looking at them now. So it's sort of playing out. You've got the grand final, a bit the Warriors, they were definitely better by quite some distance. Yeah. The, the preliminary final, they beat the Broncos, but the Broncos were, were as good as them, but the Roosters didn't have to be. That's city advantage, yep. Yep, and then yep. and then um, and they were definitely better than the Knights when they beat them thirty-eight twelve in the the semi-final before. Sean Rudder had a blinder that day, just quietly. Yes, but <laughs> but but you know, like I, I see I see good games as an outcome. You know what I mean? I, th- I think. Yeah. So let, let's talk about. Um, what, I mean, one of my favourite studies has been Origin, right? And when when Queensland was doing so brilliantly well. They were all playing together, Storm Broncos Cowboys. Mm. So in that ten-year period, on average, they were taking the field with six times the level of understanding of New South Wales. Shit. Wow. And the problem yeah. is, is New South Wales couldn't build it because they only had three games every year. And the problem was choice, right? Yeah. And 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 they also had that spine, right? So that spine had more understanding between it than most NRL clubs on any given weekend. But so what you so what you're saying here, the, the Queensland idea back in the day of pick and stick was actually the smart way to play it for them. It, it was, but it actually required a system underneath that you had. That, so we use a number called TWI, so that's the level of cohesion of the teams, in that you had three simultaneous destinies function, dynasties, sorry, functioning at Broncos, Storm, and Cowboys with yep. the bulk of the players there. So they're playing together every week and then just yep. melting so three at, games. You look at how Cherry Evans, for example, came on in Melbourne, I think 15, I might get the years wrong, and had a bit of a shocker. Like, that's, that's predictable for him because he hadn't played part of that spine, right? Now, the next week, Munster comes from Queensland. They win by 40, and he gets mad of the match, right? Now, neither of them are that bad. Or, you know, Cherry Evans is not that bad. Munster's not that good. But it was the scenario under which they were playing as part of the spine. So if you look at uh, um, oh, who's the um, uh, the 5'8 from Broncos, um, Previously part of the spine for Queensland before. Uh, Darren Lockyer? Lockyer. So if you look at Lockyer's first test, it was a train wreck, right? Because it was a New South Wales-based spine. Yeah, I think think he came off the bench as well. Yeah, he might have, I don't know. But but, (coughs) Excuse me. So so there's a term called attribution bias, which is we tend to look at someone's performance as a result of them being competent or incompetent, but it's mainly to do with the scenario that person is in. And, yeah, then, right, eh? and then in the same way that if someone is playing brilliantly, it's also probably got a lot to do with the scenario that they're a part of. Brock Lamb. And, um, yeah, right. and there's a term in football called the Bayern Munich Mirage. Have you guys heard of that before? No, no. The Bayern Munich Mirage is basically a player leaves a very well-built club and they're never the same again. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know... So when we look at a trade, so part of part of the early research was this notion of portability of talent. So a player comes from one club, goes to another. So the first thing we look at is the worse the club they come from, the more likely they are to improve at the next club. Right? Yeah. Yep. Because they're in they're functioning in chaos. So if you take a player out of 
I won't, let's not cast aspersions, but let's say out of the Knights right now. Josh King. Yeah. Josh King out of the Knights to Melbourne. Clint Newton yeah. to, the new, to, the, to Manly, to, to Melbourne. Yep. You know, he, I talked to him about it and he goes, yeah, it was 100% different. So, yeah. so from, from a low cohesion club to a high cohesion club, they're much more likely. If they go from a high to a low, like say a, um, you know, Ryan Hoffman to the Warriors, yep. you know, very, very difficult for that person to replicate the same level of form. Okay. Now, the other part is the position. So, interestingly, wingers can change clubs more easily than, say, halfbacks, five-eighths, centres. Josh Adokar. Yeah. You look at Foran. Foran has been, is basically the Bayern Munich barrage, you know. Yeah. Great at Manly, terrible everywhere, everywhere else. else. Back to Manly. Hey, I'm back again. Happy day. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah um, absolutely. So, so, that sort of, we all do that all the time. We look at someone and say, they're useless. And, um, and a lot of the study we've done has actually been about history and about military history a lot of stuff around you know um we take a lot of stuff out of, of military studies that people have done about how understanding affects performance and we we took we look at it through a very objective way right so you know as much as this might sound bad but as much as you say okay they had a terrible culture and they were pretty awful if you look at say the germans in world war ii they had easily the most cohesive army by the numbers right and they were much more effective and it took much bigger forces to overcome them, but that didn't mean they had a good culture. Or I won't say they're similar, but West Coast Eagles in 06, right? Probably the worst culture of any team in the history of professional sport. Yeah. yeah. You know, that team, one guy had a drug overdose, three were in jail, 10 arrested on drugs charges, but they won the whole thing. Yeah. And I asked yeah. um, Chris Judd, you know, what was the likely part of that team? And he said, it was a machine on the field, off the field, not so much. But I went to Carlton and off the field, they were lovely people, everyone doing the best they could on the field. It was like the Benny Hill show, just chaos, bikes bumping heads everywhere, you know, all over the shop. And um, one of the things I really find difficult to hear, particularly in the age of social media, is people saying the players aren't trying. But yeah, everyone every, tries. Every, everyone, I can tell you from professional, everyone is doing their best all the time. But you know what it is mainly is the level of ambiguity about what you're doing. And sometimes yeah. that's not a coaching issue. Sometimes that's a turnover issue. Sometimes that's we don't have anyone left at left centre. Can you go play there? Yeah. And when you don't know what you're doing, you can't be confident, right? If I say yeah. to you guys, right, you've just you've just counted, you know, if I said count one to one to a hundred in English, you'd be pretty confident, right? If I said to you, okay, do it in do it in French backwards, you're not going to be very confident in the next thing you do, and you're not going to look confident. People say, why isn't he confident? It's like because well, he doesn't know that play or that pattern or that. Those, that phraseology to be able to pull out. And so the classic term we find is when a, a coach that has a low cohesion team and they're losing, he says, I just want players who have pride in the jersey. Like that's just the old chestnut they bring mm, out. Yeah. But, but fundamentally, um, everyone's doing the very best they can. And so the Knights, like the Knights this year, they're not underperforming. They are where they should be. So That's hard to hear. That's hard yeah. to hear. Can we, can we, can we, did you watch yesterday's game? Yes. Well, let's uh, let's um, let's jump straight into it. We'll, we'll, normally, we'd we'd look at a couple of other um, games before we sort of do our, our we do a bit of around the grounds. But um, look, let's ju- I, I want to keep the train rolling. Let's get straight into the Knights game. Um, from we were at the Brett and I were at the game. Um, we sit just behind the players' bench, and 
kicking out on the full, you, I don't, you don't need to be doing any analysis to know that that's not the way you're going to be starting. That you can't start your game like that against the Melbourne Storm. Sitting on the sideline yesterday, we we thought, oh, it's going to be one of those afternoons. Well, well, yeah, and the, the challenge is that that there's there's, two, there's four components to a game, right? The component is your your uh, your defence, how you how you built in defence, how you built in attack, and then how the opposition is built in attack and how the opposition is built in defence. And so, the storms the storms attack was able to very easily pick apart the Newcastle defence, right? It just it was able to function, and some of the simplicity of the tries particularly in the second half, was was um, terrifying in a way, like how simple, they, how simple they were. But that's just the system functioning as it should of a, of a well-drilled team where everyone knows exactly what they're doing. Now, is that, actually, is, is that Melbourne finding the Knights' weakness or is that Melbourne just being Melbourne? No, that's them, that's them exposing their weaknesses. Yeah, okay. okay. So, so mm-hmm. if I look at a game, I'll, I'll look at a team, a rugby league team is 78 78 relationships first up, right? So there's 13 players on the field. But oh, of course. Yeah, of sorry. Course yeah. yeah, of course, there's, yeah. you know, winger to winger doesn't necessarily matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. So we'll then construct, you know, a map of the teams on the field and we'll look at the level of understanding between them. And it's like, you know, if you look at a grand final, there might only be one one weak level of understanding between two players on the right edge in the second half and the reserves are on. Yeah, but let's say with the Knights yesterday, it'd be more than sixty percent of the understanding is weak. Yeah, right. So therefore, the Storm can do whatever they want. They don't have to target individual to take so them you, apart. So are you saying we can use injuries as an excuse? Because if you can't have that consistency of players, if you're having to continuously reshuffle the decks, the, the chairs around on the deck, um, because you're always filling holes, like is the, it, can you say, well, no, injuries are a legitimate excuse? It's, it's, you know, I don't really like the word excuses or whatever. But the, the team is built how it's built, and it'll play how it'll play. Mm. And if it's if you got injuries, the level, the 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 ability of it to function optimally is is negligible. It, it can't. If you have people who don't know what they're doing in the position they're doing it, and they haven't got experience in doing that, that's like asking us to drive a Formula One tomorrow and say, well, yeah. okay, well, I'm, it's it's an excuse, I know, but it's only my first Formula One. Okay, well, good luck, you know. So, yeah. so, so what 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 explains then, um, Ben? After the game yesterday, we did a very quick look around our four essentially front row forwards: the two Sofides, David Clemmer, and Leo Thompson. Now they had tremendous running meter statistics for the first three weeks of the season. Um, oh, Clem, sorry, was injured after the, I think after the first game. Anyway, they had tremendous running statistics out the first, three, and yet yesterday they barely managed to. Uh, accumulate more running meters than Josh King, who cracked 200. Where does like how do how do forwards? Surely they don't forget how to how to carry the ball in the space of a few weeks. No, but 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 a but a but a carry of a forward. What does it come off? Comes off the previous recycle speed. Yeah. It? yeah, And you're up against the most cohesive defense in the comp, or second most cohesive defense in the comp. So you so their line speed is going to be coming at you. So as a game, generally teams will fatigue, whereas the storm they'll actually function. So so basically, as a game goes, people get more and more and more tired, okay, and they'll start doing things competently at the start of the game, right? So so you know any any skill you have to be able to do 
you can do it under under um, no under no fatigue with no problems, right? And then and then you you go and run around the block and then come back and try to remember to do it. Okay, and then do that ten times and then do that thirty times and then you're absolutely gassed mm. and you're trying to remember what you need to do. It's, it gets harder and harder, right? So this the really good teams, interestingly, actually generally play less plays, but they just play them really really well. With uh, I'd call it they have complexity inside of simplicity as opposed to they don't they run three or four players brilliantly. <coughs> Excuse me. If you think about the storm, you know, nine seven nine one, how many times have they do that play? You know, yeah. the yeah. old spine. And yet um, and yet the other teams will try to run ten different plays but but none of them will work. So yeah. so in, in that scenario, against four teams, you know, um, that those guys will look good and they'll get good recycle and then and then as the year goes on it gets harder and harder and you know not everybody's up all the time but absolutely sure they're doing the very very best they could but if the previous play doesn't get quick good recycle ball and the opposition's on the back foot you're not going to make yardage are you no so they're just they're stop this basically what those clubs do is they just strangle you and if you look at the nrl over the past 20 years well 50 years basically it tends to be the best defensive teams win the comp. Now, cohesion drives defence much more than it does attack. Attack, it's important. It definitely makes a big difference. But it's really about the level of understanding drives how well they defend. And if you look at the best teams who win the comp, they're letting in 13 points a game, 10 points a game. Yeah. And and the actual difference in attack is actually quite negligible. Generally, most teams are scoring about the same amount of points over a season. Yeah. But it's when... It's when clubs like this Penrith and and um, you know and the Storm come up against teams that are in a bit of chaos. They'll just take them to school. Interestingly, a team like Parramatta, you know, when they don't have any issues with their edges, you know, as they do at the moment. But a, a team like Parramatta, there's a term in in a lot of sport which is a flat track bully. Have you guys heard that term before? So what's interesting is we, t- we look at really, really ex- high experience clubs. High experience is basically they've, they've brought people in and how they go against high cohesion clubs. And generally what will happen is the high cohesion club will just out defend them and they'll beat them, you know, 12 nil or 16 nil. Which, which is the Penrith example of their young side and they'll beat teams far more experienced through their cohesion. They were the youngest team in the comp last year. Yeah, yeah. But the understanding between them is is extraordinarily high, and you can see that in their defence. And and that's a system they've built over a long time, and, and it's one of those things that the best part about it is if you build a system really well, you chop off its head and it just grows another head. Like, we all thought Melbourne was done when they lost their spine. Mm. Guess what? They're not done. Because what, what happens... They got is, better. They got better. Yeah, 100%. If, if you actually... If you actually build a system in that fashion, the players you have get better after they get there. Because in chaos, like if you're if you've had seven different coaches in five years, you're not going to get better, are you? If you had if you had you know a different five eighth every week, you're not going to get become a better player. Because all you're doing is spending all your time adjusting. Yeah. If you spend all your time adjusting, you don't improve your core skill. Yeah. Whereas the storm, you know, they'll change two or three players a year. The patterns are the same. Everything's the same. So then you can actually get to work on the detail. So that's sort of where the where the different clubs are at right now. And so what the, happens the, is the, the, the players the, don't improve when they go. I mean, do play. Here's my question: Do players get better at the nights right now? 
No, no, they go backwards. Well, I don't, I, I don't uh, think they go backwards. I think, oh, I think they, they, they go backwards. They, they don't develop in terms of like a 22-year-old might be the same at 26 rather yep. than a 22-year-old being a lot better at 26. Yeah. Now, that's yep. not as much to do with coaching as is the construction of the team. That's my opinion. Okay. As, in yeah, other okay. words, if okay. you put – if there's a lot of good coaches that have come out of Melbourne Storm and gone to other coaches, been unable to replicate it. And, our, our, and, our, coach, our coach is from the Storm system. Yeah. But you can't you, – the, the, all these clubs, you know, because we, we, we do work as well as the Crusaders in, in rugby. And one of the things is that everyone goes to the Crusaders and goes to the Storm and hangs out for the weekend and is like, oh, we need to copy what they're doing. You actually don't need to copy what they're doing. You need to copy their ability, the, the level of understanding they have. The, the, the patterns that they developed were developed out of the strengths and weaknesses of Smith, Cronk, Slater. Oh, hang on, hang on. When you say, I'm curious about obviously building something out of your strength. That makes talk, talk me through the idea behind weaknesses. Where, where where are you building something out of someone's weakness? Okay, so if, what do you mean if, by that? If Cameron if Cameron Smith is a slow player, yes. Okay, you're not going to be having him maybe darting okay. three players across the field. Okay. Okay. I so therefore, you have to develop a passing game. Yep. <coughs> so you take the limitations you have, and then you you adapt to those limitations. And oftentimes that adaptation can then become your strength and then it becomes your dominance and everyone else is copying it, not understanding that's actually just because of a weakness. No, so actually, sorry. I, I think this is consistent with what you, what you see. Yeah, because I've always said people look at these good teams and they go, oh, you know, the Storm have this amazing hooker, so we need to build that. We need to get the best hooker we can and build around that. I've, what, the lesson I take from that is that, no, Cameron Smith is their best player. So they're building their team around their best player. So... That's what the Knights should be doing. Not, their best player is Caelan Ponga. So let's build a team around that as opposed to saying, well, we've got the best hooker we can and it's Jalen Braley, so let's build that team around him. But here's, here's, the, here's the part that really messes with your head is the Broncos didn't want Cameron Smith and they were right. Yeah, right. Yeah, I can, I can see that. After listening to you for the last if, if, hour, if, I can see if that. Cameron Smith, if Cameron Smith had gone to the Eels, would he have become Cameron Smith? No. 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 Okay. Not, not a chance. Okay, so... so at the time, you know, Jordan Jordan didn't play. I think Jordan didn't get picked up straight away, did he? He didn't make his high school team. No, he no, missed out on varsity. Yep. Yep. So, so certain certain players are at certain points along the way, and that doesn't mean that people are wrong not taking them. But it's it was the situation of, of him going to Melbourne. I mean, they asked they asked Bellamy what was so special about Cameron Smith when he arrived, and Bellamy said, "I don't remember." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the interview, I love this part. That Cameron Smith looks at Bellamy and says, "Sometimes I think you made us; other times I think we made you." Yeah. And they're both right, right? And yeah. so, so it is the they... Belichick Brady thing. Yeah, and and but one thing that was interesting, and I was I'm going to talk about trading for a second. People say to us, "Well, hang on a second. Kronk went to the Roosters and it worked, right?" So the first thing about that was in that season that Kronk went across, he actually. Um, every single spine that year changed. So it wasn't just the rooster spine changing. Every single team spine changed oh, in that season. Right? So they actually had a good year to do the change in the spine. Yeah, but if you look at their attack in the first six weeks, they were awful. They mm. were. You're right. I do remember that. But, but and everyone spine, blames Andrew Johns because he was there for six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> but the spine, right, is a smaller group of people. So therefore, understanding builds faster between the spine than the whole yeah. team. It's like a four-piece yeah. versus an orchestra. That's yeah. why basketball teams can build on the same quicker. They play more games. There's only five. Less participants. That's why AFL requires like 
five times the cohesion of rugby league to win. Because and, and, and the rebuilding in AFL takes so long. You know, clubs build for year after year after year. Yeah, because it's also the highest cohesion league in the world. Yeah. You just don't trade in the AFL comparative to any other sport in the world. So yeah. be that as it may, the other, the other part was really interesting is we actually, we have all these um, uh, algorithms that we've designed ourselves, right? So one of them is called the Sinfield Ratio after Kevin Sinfield. <laughs> the other one's called the Pulitua Coefficient. Right? <laughs> I love it. Love these names. Okay. And so another one is this 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 Kronk factor, right? And what was interesting about Kronk was that that we looked we looked at this and we went, ah, so we're talking to some of the um, Storm guys and we're saying like um, uh, Frank Panisi. So Simon, yep. my business partner yep. who does all the data. I'm just I just kind of talk about it. He does actually more. <laughs> but um, we're sort of saying like Kronk wasn't on the field just to play for the Roosters. He was on the field to call the storm around the field for the Roosters. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. So he was, he was he, him, him being a former Stormers player, Storm player, he's sitting there in the defensive line, behind the defensive line of the Roosters saying, they're coming left. They're going to go same way. Oh. They're going to run 9-6. And he was calling out to the Roosters players of what the Storm were going to do. And if you ever look at Ben Hunt's first game for St. George, there's this tap kick that Brisbane did, and he ran straight at, the, at, at five metres to the right of the guy doing the tap and intercepts the ball, runs straight up the other end. And you can, you can only have known that, that that was a set play. That's why the Melbourne Storm brought in Josh King, because he was standing in their defensive line saying, this is where they're going to drop the ball. <laughs> um, but that was just like that, that we started looking at it oppositional understanding and, and you know, knowing, knowing the opposition and playing with teammates. Um, one of the other things we found is if you change clubs, the chance of you playing Origin again dropped by forty-five percent. Oh, so people put that people put that down to going to a worse club, which generally when guys leave, it's for money to a, a more influx club. So it's actually just the change of clubs rather than the change of standard of clubs. Well, well you know, generally, generally, um, I think we looked at the Dalian medal, and Dalian's not a great judge of it. But if you look at the positional Dalian medal. I think the amount of guys who win those, particularly in those core positions, you know, nine, six, seven, one centres, takes I think on average five years at the new club to win the Dalian for that position. With wingers, I think it's like one point five seasons. So yeah. it depends on the positional component. Yeah. It does depend on the club you go to. But you know, Kronk, Kronk did not have his best year in his first year at the Roosters. They won no. the top, but it wasn't his greatest year he's ever played. No. So to hit peak performance, so in we found in the EPL, for example. It's about two and a half years to hit peak performance when you change clubs. So if you have an entire team full of guys who've changed clubs recently, how can you perform? That's a lot of pressure on a player in the EPL when you've got a hundred million dollar transfer fee hanging over your head. To yeah. say, oh, it's, I need two years before I'm going to be able to properly deliver. <coughs> yeah, and they probably don't get it. But the, the the positive part is the entire EPL is in chaos. You know, yeah. Yeah. All the yeah. Time, so. yeah. So yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, if you look at so, so here's the thing that's interesting too. If you keep players together for an extended period of time and you build them yourself, the market then starts to overvalue those assets. Yeah, yeah. So, so I have, you know, I'm never going to say breaking the salary cap is good, but you can see how a club wants to retain the assets. You know, they started off, started off Cameron's with $5,000. Six years later, he's worth $1.7 It's like, we built this thing. Why do we have to let someone else take it off us? Whereas yeah. other, yeah. 
to want to acquire those assets. And I do have some sympathy for that. Again, else? Can I ask you, Ben, just to, back to yesterday's game. So based on what you know about sport and this, this cohesion factor, in a lot of ways, are you saying that for you now certain results are just a foregone conclusion? Like, was yesterday any surprise? The fifty to two, fifty to two scoreline was that just yeah? That's what you anticipated. It was no surprise. You just you knew that was going to happen. I'm looking at the numbers now. The minimum generally on a game like that is thirty point margin, but it wasn't. So I would have taken that. There was a game. There was a game. Um, a couple of years ago where um, oh, also too Melbourne was, was a lot more experienced. Yeah. Experience yeah. has a factor. So if you have cohesion, there's a factor. Experience adds to it again. Um, yeah. Part of the problem with Melbourne is they're also so well built. They've got a lot of juniors and a lot of system understanding underneath. Like we, we don't go down to 12s. We look at it, we understand it, but we don't go and get team lists from St. Mary's, so to speak. Yeah. So there's probably a bit there. Um, <coughs> There was a game a couple of years ago, excuse my coughing, um, where the Roosters were playing Brisbane and we looked at every other game that had ever been played that looked the same as that game. Right, So we went back to 85 and we said, OK, how many times have games been played that look like this? And there was three of them that had ever been played and they were all 50-point margins. And so then when that fourth game was a 50-point margin, that was like, OK, that makes sense. You are listening to the Bay 53 Podcast. <laughs> what are we talking about? You're talking about the tw- you, so we were going to look at yesterday something about the twelve markers. You were going to look at the twelve markers of the. Oh, okay. So 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 um. When when you've got when you've got chaos everywhere and you're and you're and you're and the markers the markers aren't signalling something that's very good. But then if you've got guys guys on top of that playing out of position, which uh, we did yesterday. Yeah, then then fundamentally, if they so if if there is best way to describe it is if there is one gap in the wrong spot, what they'll end up doing is just pouring through that gap again and again and again and again and again. Which they did yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you, I think if you look at the Eels game from the weekend, it was quite similar. Yeah. So yeah, there's actually no there's almost no limit as to how much they can use that. Yeah. So they, but my question in regards to that then is so the Knights have had this habit over the last few years where. Guys have been a bit mis, a bit of misfit, you know. They, we haven't quite got a position for them, so we've then tried to teach them new spots. Like Kurt Mann is basically every year he's had a new role in the team. Kalen had that try where he um, they put him to five eight for six weeks or something. Three games. Well, still three, only three games. Is is that does that actually hurt us? The fact that every year we try to change roles for players. Ch- changing hurts you once, but then not sticking with it. Is the hurts, you, hurts you again, yeah. It's like, okay, so so that was a waste of time and money. So, like, the, 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 thing, the thing that I find people do generally is they'll try to fix the problem and they'll say, okay, so, so the easiest way to describe it is you don't find combinations, you build combinations. And it's like, it's like they're trying to find a combination. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to say. We, we're 100% trying to find combinations. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You basically say, right, we are starting at ground zero here. And so there's a, there's a team in the um, English Premier League, um, I think Brentford, and they yep. have a rule, which is they don't judge a player's performance until they get to like 38 weeks. Oh, because, okay. 
they know that it takes time for players to get an understanding of what they're doing. Yeah. So what you want to do is you want to get those games into them as young as you can, preferably before they hit first grade. Yeah. Right. You don't want to be, you don't want to be, um, I mean, one of, one of the things that's interesting is we were looking at the Crusaders in rugby and most of the time when a Crusader player takes the field, he's already played with 13 of his teammates. So yeah, the chances right. of him playing well, yeah, much stronger. You don't want to be undergoing that initiation in first grade. Yeah. You know, yeah. like a bad yeah. sign is when they win a shitty game and everyone has to get a sheet of paper to do the song. The 2016 Knights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it only happened once, but they all needed a sheet song to do it. <laughs> so, so, and the problem is, is that you're up against different quality of teams all the time. So oftentimes they'll they'll pick a crappy team or they'll pick a team and they'll go, okay, well, we're going to try this combination. And then they play against a poor team and it works. And then they play against Penrith the next week and the Penrith put 50 on them, but it's like, that's supposed to happen. That's part of the deal, right? Yeah. That, because you're always at a certain point of understanding. And it it's, Phil, it's Phil Gould with Kyle Flanagan. That's that's what the Bulldogs did with Kyle Flanagan. They they put him in reserve grade to start the season to get him – get his confidence and then but they brought him out for I think for the Penrith game and everybody was lambasting them go well how can you throw this kid into the but they've given him that time to develop and he came good against the Roosters over the weekend yes and and so there's these there's this problem which is if you're not a well-built club and you win two games you think we're going great and then you come up against a good team tonight you, you come up against a good team and that team absolutely schools you right that that outcome is as predictable as you beating the poor team. Yeah. And yeah. so the problem is, is that you then go, well, we've got to make changes, right? We've got an action bias. We have to make a change. And here's the thing, right, is if – I think of it this way. If you don't change a team, it gets better, right? That's Cronulla in 16. They just kept on keeping the team together and they caught up as the season went on. But – Here's what happens: if the more things, if the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. The Knights are pretty much still where they were in 05. Yeah. It's still pretty much the same, but it, yeah. but hundreds of people have gone through the place. Yeah. 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 So so they're basically back at the same spot, and so statistically, right, they are pretty much still in the same spot as they were in when they lost to Parramatta by 40 in 2005. Now 2005, they had guys who were injured that year. Right. What was interesting was in 06, all those players came back. Well, they finished the season 05 really well, didn't they? I think they yeah. Eight day. of 11. Yeah. But then, <clears throat> you know, 06 comes around. They end up making the semis. Top four. Yeah. And then, and then, and then more change comes. And then the place gets gutted. Yeah. And then, and then, so there's a number called, there's a, there's a number called TWI, right? Now it grows three to five percent a year okay so understanding so you look at Penrith they've gone from 30 percent TWI to 80 percent TWI since 2013 so I don't know maybe eight percent a year but the problem is you can you can dump at 40 percent in a week but you can't get that back it does you can't get it back in a week it takes you then going to take you eight years to get that back that makes sense. So, so yeah, yeah, that's the problem. And and so what ends up happening is you end up in this place where we don't have any good players, so we've got to go get new players. And the new players come in, and guess what? One, they probably misbehave. Two, they're more likely to get injured. Three, they're not going to play as well. 
Four, they're going to say, this is how I did it at the Roosters and try to change how everyone else plays. Roosters, bad example, you know what I mean? So, no, so no, no, I know what you're saying. Okay. Then, then the, the players you have are struggling to adjust to the new plan that's come out of the Roosters or another club. Then the juniors get the shits because they leave because they've been overlooked and they go to another club and they end up coming back and scoring tries against you later on. Nick me. Then the players you've brought in leave and then you look to your juniors to come through and you're like, we don't have any talent. So guess what? We start again. So that we call that process cycling. And like Richmond did that once from 1982 to 2015. So what's that? 33 years. Yeah. yeah. Some clubs never get out of that cycle. And the hard part, the hard part, and you can't, like the Knights, aren't, the Knights are not as far away as people think because you're actually much further away when you have an old team in the finals. 2013. So, so if you have an old team in the finals, it's not, that's not sustainable. You want a young team who's like Penrith right now is a young team and they have a cohesive team. Mm. If you have an old team that's been together for a while, but if you, if you take a bunch of 24 year olds and get together for six years, you can make the finals, but then you'll collapse and you've got to start it again. So a young team that's, that's get like the Bulldogs are really, you know, are not that far away either. What you don't want is you don't want to be, have to basically pull the whole thing apart again, but it's, it's a challenge because of the pressure, the pressure of the board, pressure of the owners. Commercial know. realities. Yeah, but it's it's the it's the club that pushes that back as hard as they can. And you want you want basically a, a singular owner or a singular, you know, body to sort of you know, I, I always laugh that Dennis Fitzgerald as as much as a criminal or whatever he was at Parramatta. <laughs> a naughty boy, but he was a consistent naughty boy. Yeah, so they won fifty percent of the fifty-eight percent of their games under Fitzgerald. Whereas, the you know they basically then created a rule is they couldn't have anyone on the board longer than two years. Well, then they won thirty-six percent of the game for the next twenty-five years because <laughs> yeah. no one was going to be there. No one was going to be there, and so the board constantly wanted success tomorrow. Right? Yeah. yeah. Ben, I look. I, I want to jump into some questions because I think this is a good way to sort of segue into. I think this is a little bit what you're talking about here. I, I want to ask you, Vittoria at a Coulter eighty four on Twitter said, he said, you guys, myself and Bretto, have touched on it, and others are now screaming for it. If we move O'Brien on, but then who do we get? And that's no guarantee anything will change. Will it still be the same playing group for at least a season or two? So, can I? assume from what you've said you're not a big proponent of a sack the coach to solve your problem solution type of guy we we would say that what does history tell us about sacking the Knights coach the cycle starts again so whoever generally comes in is going to be is going to come in and say well <coughs> that's not how I like to play so I need to get players who can play the way I like to play yeah. and bring them in um, yeah O'Brien's not the, you know, any coach. The, the biggest problem is what you don't want to do is you don't want to hand the keys over to the coach. Because you hand the keys over to the coach, it's like, okay, he's in charge and um, there's no there's no kind of like, okay, what is the nice way of playing? Let's recruit to that and let's do that over a long period of time and the coach is just part of that process. Yes. And and that whoever, that when that coach leaves – hopefully use another coach, but you're still playing the same way. Alex if, Ferguson at Manchester United. 100%, who barely coached himself, actually. Yeah, yeah. Right? But he, the first thing he did was interesting, was he stabilised the club, then he brought the kids through. Yeah. 
he didn't he didn't go straight away kids because that's suicide as well right so th- there's this there's this notion of the club has to be you know like if 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 you if i asked you guys what is the night style of play you could probably describe to me melbourne style of play more accurately than could the night style of play oh 100% i could i could describe to you what knights fans and the club think our style of play is which is hard tough aggressive footy um, and we put on points, you know, we, we, we work to put on points. So there, I think there's still that mentality that Chief and Butts are running around and we're that hard, gritty team of the 90s. I, I think that's what people think not Newcastle Knights football is. Yeah, but, but you know, Chief's older than me now, so that's not happening anymore. <laughs> but but it, it's like, you know, you, and you can, you can evolve it and you can change it over time, but it has to be evolving rather than keep on, you know, um, you don't want to keep on reinventing the wheel. Adapt or die. Yeah, well, it's it's got to be okay. We we've got this now. Let's build on it and let's build on that. And then also, you need to adapt to the strengths you have of the players you have coming through the system. But I, I would say, like, do the Knights junior coaches know what type of players they're looking for to develop? You know, into the system. No, ne- never, right never, in our, never in our history has that been the case. We have never developed players to fill positions in first grade. And, th- and that was the one thing that I've always credited our Adam O'Brien for. He's basically said to the junior coaches, we're not about winning. We're about producing players to fill holes in first grade. Um, which, which first is grade the model. Yeah, yeah which, which, is, which is the Penrith model. Yeah. But to me, that process hasn't worked in the sense of we haven't developed the – we haven't – we just haven't been lucky in terms of, like, we need a halfback. We have – we. See, have, we We've been trying to get a halfback for twenty years, and we've tried everybody, but we just can't find one. Um, that's, I find that you know, is that but, bad luck? Is that poor coaching? No, what I would say is, is that that um, if you build a system, the bet the better. We found this when we looked at English football. <coughs> Excuse me. The, the more stable the team is, the greater the chance the juniors have when they come into the team. Yes. See, I always think that I said to K, K- Dog at yeah, the football. To me, Brock Lamb was was the missed opportunity. Brock Lamb has all the skills to be a first grader, and came into the most chaotic situation a halfback had ever come into, and now plays for the Maitland Pickers. And we expected yeah. a twenty-year-old to fix the team. Yeah, we, we yeah. expected a twenty-year-old to come into a team that were getting beat by fifty every week and fix it. And he did. Like he he actually won us quite a few games in the twenty seventeen season, but he could the never problem- he, can, he can never continue that. The problem is too is that well, the way we recruit, and this isn't just in sport, this is in business as well, is you you know the weaknesses of the ones you have and you see the qualities of the one you don't. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, he can't do this, he can't do this, he can't do this. Well, guess what? Cronk couldn't do a lot of the stuff when he started. Yeah. Mm. Matty John's even saying, God, he's just he's too far gone as a rugby union player. I don't know if I can I can pull this off. <laughs> yeah. But you 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 find a way, right? You work around those weaknesses and you eventually come to something. And I think part of it too is is the, the club had the ultimate situation in that it had brothers as playmakers together. Yeah. And like when we look at brothers, we just say, right, starting point, there's 500 games together before they, before they play first grade. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that taps into a bit of a theory of mine. I'll drag you in on this as well. Bretto is that, you know, we've at a very exaggerated way of saying it is that we're, the new, the Newcastle Knights were a team that was never going to have success, but it was just, the cracks were papered over by the fact that we had an immortal at, as as our halfback for 15 years. And his brother played next to him. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, like the Knights were never the best defensive team. They basically outscored teams. 
Yeah, yes. 50 to 20 was a common night score in that era. Yeah, and so basically you had this genius and also this cohesion in the brothers. You had it in the Eller brothers. I don't know if you remember the Eller brothers. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And that was our advantage for, for quite a long time. And so they were cohesive enough, the Knights, to to put together a, a, a good performance. Can I, can, I, can I just ask a, a question in terms of rugby? So the, the recent golden year of Australian rugby was the golden year of the Brumbies. Now, was the cohesion of that Brumby side why the Wallabies were so strong at the turn of the century? So I, I have a long answer to this. Depends on how you, you want the long, yeah. or the, long or the short. You, whatever you want to give us, mate. Happy to, okay, happy so, to have so, so here's what's interesting. So Australia rugby, you go back to 1882, okay? Yes. <laughs> this is a very long answer. <laughs> okay. So basically, basically, in Australia, you just used to play for your club, right? Yeah. And then you play three or four games for your state. In New Zealand, they had basically your province and you played a lot of games for your province and then you played for your country. But most of the time, New Zealanders played for Auckland, right? So they played for Auckland for 10 games a year, then they played for New Zealand. So they get a huge advantage through that process. Yeah. So, so New South Wales and Queensland would play about four games a year. And up till the 1920s, basically, they play four games a year, go play the All Blacks and lose them. And I think we generally won about 15% of games against the All Blacks. Then Queensland Rugby Union collapsed weirdly <coughs> and there was no one to play so new south wales went to new zealand to play every year for for every second every second year for six years and guess what they started beating the all blacks off the back of that yeah right. they were going to new zealand playing 25 games a year yeah so they were getting shared games even though the amount of talent they had in the system fell apart then they went back then the, then queensland rugby came back they went back to the old system of four games a year so rugby got belted so fast forward now to 1962 and someone in Queensland, it gets so bad that New South Wales actually refuses to play Queensland in those in that series every year. Someone gets this idea that why don't we do a pre-season tour to Argentina or something, and they, you know, they can now fly around. So they start Queensland basically start touring every single year, but New South Wales don't. That then becomes the core of a Queensland team that then completely turns around the results against New South Wales. So before that, Queensland won probably. 15% of games against New South Wales. Now they're winning 70 to 80% of the games against New South Wales. That call then becomes the Wallabies that then starts winning the Bledisloe Cup. That continues through the 70s, through the 80s, through to the middle 90s because no other provinces around the world is playing. It's like it's like the Queensland Maroons playing 30 games a year. Like very, in terms of, and then what that would do to International Rugby League, for example. Like the Kangaroos would just never lose a game. So... <coughs> Excuse me. So then, then somebody in 1995 had this crazy idea of entering a, a Canberra team in the Sydney comp, which was called the Kookaburras, and they had a first grade, a second grade, and a third grade. And that team, they then put the Brumbies on top of that team, and the Brumbies then entered the Super Rugby competition. Does that make sense? Yep. So, you, so what you had is basically, it's like, it's like the Melbourne Storm making up the core of a Victorian state of origin team if you could qualify as a Victorian state of origin team. So it'd just be a ridiculous advantage. They wouldn't lose the series ever. So so then the Brumbies basically overwhelmed everybody else. Then that that Brumbies team got kicked out of the Sydney comp. The, sorry, the, the, yeah, the Kookaburras got kicked out of the Sydney comp and the Brumbies haven't won a title since. And so now the, the hard part is when Australia had two teams, we could be competitive against New Zealand. We had three, we did okay. The 99 World Cup, we probably had 40% more cohesion than any other team in the world. We didn't let in a try during the whole tournament when the starting team was on. 
Correct. We just defended our way through. We won the World Cup. And then we said, you know what's better than three? Let's have four. You know what's better than four? Let's have five. So they were serving two masters. They wanted to take on rugby league, which had one, a billion dollars of poker machine money. You can't win that battle. <laughs> two, <laughs> two, you're serving two masters. Do you want the Wallabies to win or do you want the or do you want to take on rugby league? And that was the problem. They tried to do both. Ben, I, I want to ask you something I've been sort of curious about asking you tonight or, you know, during the episode. And I think, I think I'm just going to move straight onto it, but yeah. I want to sort of ask you about Andrew Johns and Mitchell Barnett at the same time. And this is sort of inspired by the cause. Uh, Dakota Bob Brook at Dakota Bob, Bob Brook on Twitter has said, um, I can't help but think back to our season absolutely derailing since the Barnett uh, send off. Should uh, he get another crack when the suspension is over? Now, uh, and myself included, and I think Brad, I will join me in this. We had our very big concerns at the time that the Mitchell Barnett send off really actually did have the potential to let to essentially end our season there and then. Now, anecdotally, we're happy to say that that may well have been proven to be the case. But I, I want to ask you about the role that individuals actually do play in terms of the way you look at the the games like how does your analysis factor for a send-off or how does your analysis factor for a generational talent in andrew johns because and with joey the other thing i want to ask is you did talk about cohesion as well in terms of that partnership he had with his brother but he won his second premiership the year after matthew left so what what role do individuals play in terms of the impact that they can have on their team with with stuff that they do that's just completely out of the box. So I think I think first thing actually to understand is just on that example. So you had you had like I said two brothers who played very well in attack, um, and the '97 Knights were probably more of that razzle dazzle in attack, and the defence was you know okay, whereas '01 was actually a better constructed team. Yeah. Like so, you, and so you didn't necessarily have an incredible team in attack. But you'd now also built Baderis John's scenario, which was pretty handy. Um, and interestingly, Danny Baderis actually helped us build our kind of like how we look at spines, like how we measure spines because of his, you know, basically just asking guys. Um, so I've got to, my apologies. So I work in 30 different sports. So I'm going to tell you, I can't remember what position Mitchell Barnett plays, but tell me where he's, tell me where Mitchell Barnett's playing. Yeah. Uh, edge forward. Okay, so if if so, he would defend fourth from the edge. Is that right? Yeah. Generally, third from the edge. Yeah, third from the edge. Yep. There are certain positions in league at which, if your edge is not stable, you have huge levels of problems. And so there are certain positions which are more important than others. And what we basically found is if the edge is not functioning as a four and have consistency as a four. They don't really have a lot of line speed. And so... And Mitchell Barnett leads that line speed. He's known, Mitchell Barnett's known in the... It only takes one line player, speed basically. Player. One player coming off and the edge can... And that edge will not function in the same way. And so you have to rebuild it again. Which, which has been our issue this year. All our, 80% of our edges this year have been on the edge. We've literally run out of edge players. So that's then, and that's so that's obviously a big factor in why the team's dropped off. So yeah, so so then you've got you've got you've got one or two choices, and they're both bad choices, right? So you can either teach a player to play in that position, which he's not used to, either a different side or a different spot, or you can bring in a kid who's not ready. He's not ready, right? So what you want to do is is this is why you have to look at this problem as a much wider problem, right? 
you want to get to to an answer where you have three good answers. Get to a position where you've got three good answers. We have another guy who's already 150 games into that position who's sitting on the bench. Or we have the team that's so stable we can bring a kid in from reserve grade who's already played with all of that right edge because they played together three or four years ago. Yeah. Right? Or you can bring somebody back that's, you know, that's, I don't know, or, or you know, like that's, all the, so you've got the guy you've got and you've got two other guys. And so there's a rule they have at the, the company, you know, LinkedIn, which is who replaces you tomorrow, who replaces you in two years, who replaces you in five years. So it takes a lot of injuries to take those teams out. Yeah, you know, okay. so, so if, if, you know, like I, I don't know with, with every club we might look at and say, do they know who the next guy is? Do they know who the next guy is after that? Because I reckon the Storm do. I reckon yeah, the, Melbourne does. Yeah, they do, absolutely. Yeah, they know four yeah. to five guys down the track who the next guy is going to be. And so then what happens is when that type of occurrence takes place, you know, they've always got an edge functioning at their at their uh, reserve grade teams together, ready to go, everyone doing the same thing. But, like, is that O'Brien's fault? No. No. Is that is that Gardner's fault? No. Is that Pederis's fault? No. So, so part of the problem is we're all we're all we're all yelling at the people who are sitting in the mud trying to fix the problem, yeah. right? And and yet, this is actually this is actually a set of circumstances that have taken place over a thirty-year basis. Yeah. So, so ben, can I can I just say something on that point, Carlo? Yeah. Um, I've got. So that brings me to a thought when you were talking about the storm and those guys know they know the next guy, those guys all play together. So my question now is since Brisbane have gone to the point of they don't have one feeder team that they're all spread throughout the Q Cup is when they've gone to rubbish. You know, they used to have the Clydesdales and they had various, you know, and reserve grade was a proper competition and they all played together. But since Brisbane have actually become a club that spreads their juniors out, the Titans do the same. They've really dropped off in standard. The, the, the Cowboys have had the advantage of they generally still play for the Blackhawks. Um, so you think that's a big part of Brisbane, the, the demise of the great Brisbane? How many, how many titles have they won since 06? Yeah, zero. Yeah, zero. That's when they did it. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Well, got, got close once, and that was just because Wayne Bennett's a genius. Well, no, no. Again, the numbers were good. Wayne, Wayne Bennett does not – Wayne Bennett – Coaches exactly the same as everything else. Oh, when I say Wayne Bennett's junior, he, I mean he, he, he identified those guys. But, but here's what happens, team. right? Is that the first the first year you do that, right? You could win the comp and no one would notice. Yeah. The year like the the uh, Brumbies feeder club got kicked out of the comp, they won the comp because what it doesn't there's the team that you have in first grade, they're not even affected by that. They've played in the systems yeah. before that. It takes about eight years to start messing with you. To, to, to completely fulfil its destiny of how much chaos it can create. It's like if you eat a donut today, you can still go to the mirror and look good, but you yeah. keep doing it. Yeah. Eventually, at some point, you're going to look in the mirror and go, oh, I regret that. Yeah. So, okay, so my next question now is, so Brisbane always had the reputation of, like, when they identified a kid and you would hear, oh, this, new, this next gun play from Brisbane is a star. They would always be stars. There was They they really missed. But now we hear so many of these Brisbane guys and they come into first grade as these big reputations and fall by the wayside really quickly. Is that because they get to first grade and not know the system? <coughs> yeah, so that that's the, that is, again, that notion we call absorption, you know, the, how well they come into the team. And, and, and those kids were never going to be stars that became stars. And the ones we're looking at now were never going to be stars 
unless the system is built right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so there's a great there's a great thing I'm I'm really big into at the moment, which is bands. You know, musical bands. Yeah. So, do you guys like? Do you guys have a favorite band of all time? Pearl Jam. Okay. This is a oh, Pearl Jam is a terrible example, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, but because I was going to say because they brought Eddie Vedder in who's play, playing previously yeah. from a yeah. band, right? So yeah. if you took all, but if you took all the bands who I think have earned over fifty million, it's sold more than fifty million albums. You yeah. two, sorry, you two, yeah, you two. Okay, so so would you say that the members of you two are talented? Mm. Reasonably, like I'd say, let's say Bono and Edge. Would you say they're say the top, yeah. at least the top twenty Irish musicians of the last fifty years? Okay. Uh, that's a very difficult. I date a, an Irish woman, um, Ben. So I'm I'm on I'm I'm on fit yeah. icy. Okay. Rolling Stones, for example, would you say members of the Rolling Stones are talented? Yes. Okay. So what are the chances that Keith Richards and Mick Jagger went to kindergarten together? Yeah, right. But they did. Oh. And Bono and Edge and and you two as a high school band. Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. And so little... twenty nine of the top twenty nine of the top thirty five bands of all time are high school bands, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, how is it possible for such incredible musicians to be at the same kindergarten at the same time? Yeah. Right? And the answer is, they weren't, but their time together made them who they were. Like, like yeah. the members of the Beatles travelled on the same bus. Yeah. Who were them at the same bus, they met at a concert. Yeah. And so it's, it's then actually being together. We, Joe Roth, and I was part of the Brumbies, used to say, how is it that the best nine and ten in the world live two streets from each other? Yeah. Right? So, and you would never have guessed. Cameron Smith and Billy Slater, you know, the same age, yeah, the exact you, same age, came through in everything the same. Yeah, and so it's actually it's actually not the notion of someone being extraordinarily talented from a young age because you look at Cameron Smith when he was young, like no one would have said he's a future Australian captain. Even even Billy Slater was, you know, was, as the, as everyone talks about, you know, was riding horses because he was, yeah. you know, just a yeah. so-so rugby league player. But but the fact that they all played at Brisbane North together. And then they became that talented. So it's the time together in the stable environment, I think, that helps create the talent. Yeah. And then Which, and then that made me start thinking very differently about teams once I sort of started to understand that. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. Like it's and yeah, I actually sort of think in a knights context, that golden generation of knights players, they were all very close to the same age and you know, and they played in all the same teams from little children. Yeah. You know, and then that and that just goes with your bands thing. You know, they were so familiar with each other. Yes. That they developed together. But you had, you know, they weren't the best behaved bunch no. of humans in the history of the world. I mean, yeah. I'd say the Brumbies, same thing, right? And, and yeah. you know, this goes to the whole thing about culture is, you know, some of the worst behaved teams of all time, the Wimbledon, the Crazy Gang. Yeah. You know, um, but, but what tends to happen is when they start winning, everyone goes, oh, they've got a great culture and they're, you know, incredible. But sometimes, you know, the normative behaviour is is – you know, go and help streets down the kids down the street. Others, it's smoking crystal meth together. Right? I'm not saying, that's that's the West Coast Eagles reference. I'm not saying either <laughs> is good, but it basically shows that they've that they've started to develop the same habits after a while. You know, um, so so for us, we don't really focus too much on the off-field stuff. You know, on the writing on the walls or the goals on the walls and stuff like that. Like, I think Storm, their only rule is just know your job. That's, um, that's what um, Bill Belichick used to say to the, you know, yeah. do your job. Yeah. The, the, just the rest yeah, of the, itself. The, the famous um, 
Patriots comebacks and Super Bowls. There's lots of Bill Belichick on the sideline when they're down by 20 going, just do your job. Do your yep. job, we'll get back in the game. Yeah. And ben, so, I, so for me, that's that's more a measure of that's more of a of, of a sign of a of a war on a club. Down the blind, we could we could obviously talk about the Newcastle Knights all night. Um, you know, I, I unfortunately though the rest of us actually do have day jobs. One thing I do want to ask you though is, I guess. Where do the Knights go for the rest of the season? Like, what, what do they need to be focusing on as a group right now in terms of getting ready for the Cowboys or getting ready for the rest of the season? Like, what, where does this team go from two and six, having lost their last six in a row? So to jag it from here is going to be hard, right? But even if they do jag it, if they do make the finals... <laughs> and making the finals isn't necessarily a marker of success. It's just the fact that you were in eight teams who qualified for this thing sometimes. Yeah, and sometimes sometimes you make the finals because another cup gets done on salary cap breaches or yeah. you know, you get a good run, you get a good draw. Um what's what's amazing actually is how much the draw affects how clubs go. And then they and get then, a good and draw. then and that's our hope. Our draw opens up at the back end of the year. Yeah. Hopefully we've got players back. Um, so not that we're any sort of premiership threat, but my hope for the season is that we'll do that Cronulla type season where we build throughout the year. I, I would say I would say you can win a you can win a title and set a club back ten years. Yeah, I agree oh, with that. Right? Yeah. And so the notion is, if the club isn't built right today, and 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 I think the club, I, I'm not I'm not in the back rooms. I don't know if the club's building towards something or if they're making you know moves. I'm not watching reserve grade. I'm not looking at, at the next steps that are being taken. But one of the problems that you have is when you win, you then try to replicate that success. And oftentimes, it might have just been a set of circumstances. So, so I'm so, a... Can I just finish? So, so the yeah. point I was going to make was 97 and 01 was, was a dynasty of the Knights, but it wasn't, it wasn't as constructed as well as it could have been. And the problem is now is you actually have to be better than that to win. Yeah. And and so keep keep trying to trying to replicate that, which was which was a set of circumstances in and of itself. You can't do that. You've actually got to have a much longer view. So the thing would be, where does the club want to be in ten years' time? How do we go about doing that? And how do we build towards that? But also to one of the best guys I've ever seen. This is Kevin Sheedy. When Kevin Sheedy first started for GWS, he knew what it was going to be. And he was losing games by 50 and skipping off the field, happy days, right? Like, like, you know, I have to, I have to look a bit more strongly at the data, but there's been losses the Knights have had this year where you'd walk off going, that was pretty impressive. And they lose Penrith loss, the Penrith loss. Yeah, but, but, but even the weekend, you know, there's probably some good things you could have gotten out of that. Adam O'Brien actually said, he said he thought he saw a response from the Eels loss, despite yesterday being a bigger loss. But what I did want to say before was, and I think this is consistent with I'm actually a mad Hawthorne Hawks fan uh, off in the in the background. And um, Alistair Clarkson said, he said one of the best lessons he learned after the 08 grand final was he said, well, we, we tried to just do our thing again in 09. And well, other teams had moved past that. They, they'd recognised that. So he said, for us to win another flag, we had to adapt to the way we wanted to play. Which is how, which is what resulted in the 2013 <laughs> premiership and subsequent three peat. They had to, they, they couldn't go back to 2008 anymore. And you have to be in a position to be able to evolve. Yeah. You have to be built to evolve. Well, it, was, it was actually interesting. I was actually looking at Alistair Clarkson 
yesterday and, and every single game he coached for Hawthorne. And so when I look at him and I look at the what they've got, in the entire time he was at Hawthorne, from what, 05 to 20 to 21, yep. they they performed under him one, uh, 0.9 of 1% above their station, given the numbers. So, so what it means is, is that when their numbers were good, they won games. When their numbers were terrible, they lost games. They weren't performing above their station. Okay. So they were performing 0.9 of 1% above their station. So in other words... They meeting expectations. So he, he, yeah, he just had the meeting their expectations. Yeah. So whether it was Clarkson, whether it was Sheedy, whether it was, you know, there's a whole bunch of coaches. I would say 90% of coach firings based on that scenario are, are um, un, unjustifiable. Like 90%? Even, 90%. Even, even Brown didn't underperform at the Knights in terms of the matches and the outcomes of the matches. Oh, I don't like that take, Ben. Yeah, no, we like the to, earlier one. We're going to have to What my point is, right, is that the team was built how it was built. Yeah. Who decides that? Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you and, can, and, if and that's when that was Nathan Brown. You can't out coach the scenario. That's the point I'm trying to make. The, the, and and that, that was always my knock on Nathan Brown was that he actually built that team. Like that team, he had full control of the club at that time. And so he sort of died, fell on his own sword, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like this, I'm, I'm going to. I mean, I live and die by this scenario. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you say that, you know, he coached to expectation, well, that just, to me, that means, well, he did a perfectly fine job as the coach. It was the building of the team that he got wrong. Yeah. I mean, there's only been one time in the nights where they've underperformed, and it was the last six games of David Waite's time. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know what you thought. Yeah. yeah. It just fell off a cliff. Yeah, yeah. And and I asked the guys internally, you know, what happened. They said there was like a number of circumstances around it, so it made it made complete sense. Yeah. Um. You know, there's that that's not that it's not that common. So even even the 2014 season after the Alex McKinnon injury, when the Knights fell off the cliff, that wasn't sort of. Um, I shall. Uh, I shall. I still maintain I shall it was a miracle. The, what's that? Sorry. I still maintain it was a miracle that we were actually that Bennett was getting teams on the park after what happened to Alex. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was there that night, actually. Oh, oh yeah. really? Yeah, right. I was working with the Knights at the time. Yeah, right. And um, and I'd had the same injury, so it was quite weird. Yeah, I can imagine. I can can imagine. I ask? Can I ask you something, Ben? Just while you're looking up those stats, uh, what's been your impression in respect of the media coverage of the Carl Lawton uh, tackle um, on, I think it was Friday night? Just, I mean, you know, obviously <coughs> um, the way your career ended, do you – like, does that bother you, or do you get do you pay much attention to that, or are you just the coverage I, I is the coverage? I from a completely different angle, which is that the problem with tackling is that we run upright, okay, and then we have to drop into a tackle, and it's very very hard to time it accurately. And we see a lot of the time. I mean, if you look at if you look at even Alex's scenario, there was a number of people on the tackle who weren't necessarily communicating with each other that created that situation. That every every time somebody is tipped or anyone is hit or a height or whatever, there's a number of circumstances in the situation. I mean, let's let's put it this way: no one is actively going to go out and do an act that is going to get them red carded. Yes, that's basically that's basically in, internal team terrorism, isn't it? Like you're yeah. actively trying to destroy them. So therefore, it's a mistake. It's an action that you did not mean to do in the way you did it which means it's either a habit that you can't undo, it's been a struggle to undo, or it's a, um, 
<coughs> or you've made a mistake in terms of your timing. And a, and a lot of the time, there's a very big difference between intent and outcome. And the and the outcome will oftentimes be, it look absolutely horrible and people say, that's it, he's got to go. Mm. But one of the problems is if you keep changing the laws, it's really hard for the players to adapt to those laws. Of course. So Which that, is one that, of the... would be, that would be my take is that, you know, I, I, I've never really known anyone that said, I'm going to go and take his head off. Yeah. Because of what it would actually mean for your career, you know. Um, but players do make mistakes and, and you run in upright and then you have to drop and sometimes you get the timing wrong, um, particularly a lot about, about um, you know, guys with kickoff receipts now and stuff like that. Like you see a lot in rugby, a lot of guys get upended. Um, so, yeah, so so I, I, I don't know specifically about the incident, but I do know that it's 90% of the time it's an accident and it's very easily for us in slow motion later to go, what a dirty act. Oh, yeah. 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 Did you um, find those 2014 stats? Okay, here we go, 2014. Okay, what round was it? Was it round eight or nine? The McKinnon injury? Yeah. Well, I thought it was round th three or four. Let's go and have a look. Okay, uh, yes, it was. It was round three. Okay. Uh, well, the next game, the Knights won 30 to nil over Cronulla against a poor Cronulla. Was that at home? Yes, it was. Yeah, I was there that day. I was there yeah. that day. It was the, the weirdest kind of experience of my life. Yeah. Uh, they were better. They were, they lost to a better Cowboys team, 28 to two, the next week. They. But see, that's consistent with what Wayne Bennett... We discussed it on our last episode, Ben, which is that Wayne Bennett would always say, I don't know which team's going to appear from week to from one week to the next. For the Knights? Yeah. yeah that, well, he's he never had a team point. built... He'd never had a team built like that. Yeah. You know, he had a team... You know, when he... When, when, he, when he even started the Broncos, right, they had about... We tried to measure it as best we could. They had a team that took the field that was better than Manly, more cohesive than Manly in the first round of of 88 because of all the understanding they built through Wynnum Manly and the local Brisbane Rugby League. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and he basically, you know, it still took four years for them to, to win titles, but they were, they were ridiculous in how well they were constructed the entire time. And what started to hurt Wayne, I think is what you talked about before about the feeder clubs. Yeah. You know? Um, okay. So then they beat, um, they beat Canberra 26 to 12 and they should have. Then they da, 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 then they beat the then they lost to the Broncos who had a definitely a better team by quite some margin. Um, then they lost to the Bulldogs and they should have. They lost to Penrith 32-10 and they were they underperformed in that game. So mm. that's the first little sign. After that, uh, they lost to Manly and they should have by a point. Then you're in the state of origin, a bit of chaos. They <laughs> lost to Warriors, who were well built because it's origin time. Yeah. They lost to the Tigers by three, and they were they were probably a better team than that. And they lost to the Roosters, and they should have. They lost to they beat the Cowboys, and they should have. They beat the Eels, and they should have. So they actually went okay. We finished eleventh that year, I think. They weren't they weren't winning games they shouldn't have won. Yeah, yeah right. I've only got uh, – they probably shouldn't have beaten the Storm when they did. Yeah, that was, a, that was a huge upset that night. Yeah, so probably uh, – it sounds to me like Is that the comeback it's... game? Yeah. 
It sounds to me like it's um, we we talk about overs and unders, and like it sounds like they were two over, two under for that year. So. Yeah, That's, right. So, and, and and the narrative of the certainly the narrative in my head is that we fell off a cliff. And clearly, we didn't. We just you know we're pretty we performed how we should have performed. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? Is you you um, uh, oh they they beat Eels. They did bloody well. Um, sorry, <laughs> I've just reached round twenty six. Um, yeah, that was that was a yeah that was an upset. Beat a poor St George team, and and so, <clears throat> but they didn't make finals that year, was it? It was it was no. the no. thirteen they made it. Yeah. But, you know, like um, let's take let's take the Crusaders in 2011. Had an earthquake in their city. Had friends die of an earthquake. Played every single game away from home and still made the grand final. Yeah. So if you're well built enough, you can deal with that. Interestingly, actually, that's probably one of the biggest things we found was when the teams went into bubbles, the Storm and the Warriors. Yeah. They started to perform above their station. Yeah, right. Just a little bit because they no, were getting more time. Year. Yeah, the, the Adam O'Brien said that the bubble helped us make the finals last year. Yeah, and um, the AFL was won by two Victorian teams who were in a bubble. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> in twenty twenty, I apologise. No, yeah. no, you're right. Ben. But, um, no, it's it's once you start to see things in this light, and and one of the things um, we talk about. So, do you guys know the way that the most tourists are killed in London? No. So they get hit by a bus, right? But why London more than anywhere else in the world? Is it something? That, is it the double decker thing? No. Okay, so so ninety percent of the world drives on the right hand side of the road, right? Ah, uh, tourists. Yeah, people are used to looking at walking out and looking left. Yeah, right? yeah. So so if ninety percent of the world's tourists are from other countries, yeah, then London. And and Australia and New Zealand is a very dangerous place for foreign tourists, right? Yeah. So so they they step out and they look to the left, they get hit from the right. So that's your memory working against you. Okay? Yeah. So I was talking to Lottie Takiri about coming across to rugby union, and he didn't use this term, but we talked about cognitive load, right? And he was saying playing union was so hard to concentrate because he would have to. He'd be running back to the trial line and there's a ball bouncing and he just wants to scoop it out. Mm. You do that in rugby, it's a five-minute penalty or, or a scrum. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so they would they, – he said just you had to concentrate so hard all the time. Yeah. And it just he, – he just like the – and the longer we, – we did a study. Interestingly, we found if players changed after the age of 21 and they weren't a winger or a fullback, they didn't tend to work. But if they did it earlier or they did it at wing fullback, wing fullback, you're sort of on the end of a chain, it's a similar position. So it's like it's like it's just too much to unlearn. Ben, I've I've got one la I've got one last question for you um, before we wrap it up um, for this week. What happens first? The Wallabies winning the another World Cup or the Knights winning another premiership? Well, the latter would be more enjoyable. Um, <laughs> <coughs> I would say, I would say that the the latter is more likely, but I think some I think some stuff's got to change. Some stuff's got to change for both of those things to happen. Yep. And and I think that the the both organisations, um, you know, you, you got to get you got to get your house in order to do both. And um, but what I would like to see more with the Knights is not looking towards 
let's win a title because anyone can win a title, right? You can jag it, you can get a good run. It's plausible. Cronulla, Wests, Penrith. But what the Panthers have done or the Storm have done is they've rebuilt themselves to be sustainably successful. Richmond did it in the AFL. And that's what I'd really love to see with Newcastle is because it's absolutely within the realms of the organisation to become a dynasty and and to basically make themselves un, untouchable because not, not many clubs are doing this stuff right. Yeah. And with the pools of talent they have up there, like it could be, it could be done so well, but what you've got to do is you've got to say, okay, well, let's put, let's put back worrying about this year. Let's, I mean, there's a term we use, which is the game line curse, which is if someone comes to us and says, can you explain to my board why I'm not winning? The coach has got three weeks till he's fired. Right? He's done. <laughs> so it can't be about O'Brien. It can't be about Baderis. It has to be about, right, what do we need to do in order to be long-term successful? And let's build towards that. And and Pong is not the answer to that. He's, he's a great player. He's an extraordinarily talent, but he cannot be indiv- – he's never individually going to be able to score enough points to out to outrun the lack of understanding the team has because it's never going to defend enough to do to cover for him. Yeah, that makes sense. And so that's, that's the problem is we're all interested in buying players who can score tries, whereas the main the main way of winning rugby league games is defending. Yeah. No, that that's actually a valid point that you make. I remember when Luis Suarez first went to uh, Barcelona back in the day. And the criticism of him was, you're not scoring enough goals. We, we brought you here to score goals. And someone pointed out, no, Barcelona didn't buy Luis Suarez to score goals. Barcelona bought Luis Suarez to win games, to, yeah. to win titles. And it's like, if, he's, if Barcelona are winning, then Luis Suarez is delivering on what he was brought in to do. So, yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, Barcelona now have completely lost their way on this front, on this exact... Yeah component we're talking about but yeah 100 percent. and um i just yeah i i i winning is a system and and it's a it's a the 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 what's happening on the field is an outcome it's an outcome and set of decisions and that takes a long time to be able to put together successfully but what's interesting is can i give you a quick stat yeah if you have if you have a rugby league tech team <laughs> And you lose a game by 20 points. If you make three changes, the chance of winning, I think, this game is 37%. If you make two changes, it's like 41%. If you make one change, it's it's like uh, 47%. If you make no changes, it's 49%. Wow. See, so, that's, see, that's the thing. Like I literally did a tweet tonight where I go, we keep changing nothing. And actually, that's the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's like... We, you think changing changing things will fix things, but like the Knights are still like if, if you if you kept let's say you kept the Knights team together right from last weekend, didn't make a single change at all. They're still probably a year and a half behind the storm. Yeah. Or two years. Like keep the same team straight, game after game after game. You still so so this has to be a, this has to be something that's thought about but but what's great about it is for example games played together in the under 12s count just as much as games played together for first grade junior development ben, ben it's think it's been a fascinating uh, insight into i think that more um uh, analytical side of, of sport that um we're really only getting a, a glimpse of uh in this episode 
Um, I, I, look, I, th- I think I've, we, get, we are going to have to wrap it up there, but um, um, Brett, I'll, I'll let you sort of uh, leave your final comments. But uh, yeah, thank, thank you so much for um, uh, you know just a lot of the explanation. And I think, I think you know, for any Knights fans that are, that I hope are listening to this, I know I've taken a lot of comfort uh, from tonight because I know uh, after the storm result, you know, it's, it's a very emotional time in Newcastle. But um, what I've taken from you know this sort of um, post-game analysis is. A lot of a comfort, you know. Freaking out isn't the way to go about it, and um, yeah, there is there is still avenue to to dig ourselves out of that mire, Bredo. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, mate. I um, I've, I've just learned so much. Like, it, to me, it was always why does nothing change? But it's actually not supposed to change. You're supposed to go on this path, but it's supposed to be on this path for for a longer period, and that's what I get out of all that. Cool. Well, I've really enjoyed it. Ben, I'll, I'll record you saying this. Um, we have to get you on again later on in the season. Let's uh, let's see how the team has developed. And, uh, yeah, don't be a stranger. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. Thank right. you so Thank- much, mate. Sports Best Friends would like to thank you for listening right to the end. You are our kind of people. Find other great sports podcasts in our family by subscribing. And remember, social media isn't a bad place. You just need to follow the right people.